climate change is kind of a slow, a slow burn. You know, you're talking about slow, steady changes over, you know, decades, multiple decades, even centuries, right? And, you know, most people are not thinking on those timescales because we all have very much more immediate concerns, right? I mean, you're thinking about, you know, how you're going to pay the rent the next year, you know, if you're going to be able to save enough money to put your kid through college. I don't even think that far. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, yeah. like, just to let you know where I'm at. But. Yeah, you know, and, and, you know, we're just not built for that. Um, and even politicians, right? I mean, they're, they're thinking about what they can do during this election cycle, right? Because right. when they come up for re-election, they need to be able to say that they did something, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, climate change is a problem that, that requires an investment that you're not going to see the dividends on for probably decades. Ooh, y'all are scratching your heads right now. I can feel it. I should definitely know my audience here. They're wine people. I'm a wine person. Everyone's tuning in to listen to wine things, not what you just heard, which unfortunately is what you're going to get with today's episode. You're welcome. But it's ironic, along with a few key turning points in my life, the reason I'm breaking format today is wine. Wine is the reason I tracked down NASA climate scientist Dr. Benjamin Cook, and it's the reason I got off my ass to the NASA Goddard Institute of Space Studies in New York. Now, just as a few years ago, I would not have touched this subject with a 10-foot pole. That is truth. Give me a skin graft, a root canal, anything. Climate change is an asshole. Number one, it's not fun. It may be fun to Ben and good on him, but you know, he's living that NASA life. Plus, with a last name like Cook, it's 100% he's going to geek out on things that warm. For the rest of us, though... This is not sexy. No one's trying to see a summer blockbuster where Bruce Willis saves the world from climate change. We will, however, suspend belief that Bruce Willis is an oil rig worker who can drill a hole in a meter, diverting it from the path of the planet. That we will pay good money for. The media knows this, which is why they play their little baby games, throw a few opposing politicians slash personalities in a cage match debate. At least that's what happens when I turn on the news. Meanwhile, it's the scientific community talking about feedback mechanisms and isotopes, you know, everyone's favorite bedtime stories. It's hard enough to reel someone in on a subject they already don't want to know, but then you're going to do it with isotope talk. And look, I'm all for geeking out on science, but when you throw out a word like isotope, you've got to back it up with some anchor to the real world or else it's just way over everybody's pay grade. There are those people. Ben, for instance, Ben's definitely an isotope guy, and God love him. Someone like Ben built my Traeger wood pellet barbecue. But I'm not trying to understand its inner workings. I just wanted to grill some delicious shit, and that's okay. Science is hard, and then we heap on top of it a metric ton of politics. Public enemy number one in my book, and it's a given. Anyone who glances at this podcast is going to think I've got some political agenda. When the truth is, if I can be real for a second, I don't even vote. I'm not proud of that. It's pretty freaking embarrassing, actually. But I say it out loud because, number one, I need to come to terms with it. So this is like confessional. But I say it to let you know that's not what this is about. So what is this about? For me, well, we'll get to my story in a bit. 
But for anyone else still listening, first off, congratulations. You made it through the longest intro of all time. Second, if you're politically jaded and or skeptical, you can't take a position on climate change because, you know, you're just trying to live your life and you don't know if setting your clock back an hour means you get more or less sleep. I get it. This one's for you. If you're only in it for the booze talk, I'm not mad at you. You'll have to wait for part two of my conversation with Ben, which tackles wine and climate change specifically. Until then, whew, this is what happens when an ex-jock rubs elbows with Einstein. Thanks for listening. We find ourselves on different sides of a line. wanted to start off with that Yale study we talked about last night, a represent, representative sample of Americans. You've got five different political groups. You've got, on the far left, extreme liberal. You've got garden variety Democrat. You've got group three, modern independent. You've got Republican. And then on the far right, you have extreme conservative, and they're all asked the same question. How much risk do you believe global warming poses to human health, safety, or prosperity? And they're asked to qualify their answers based on a zero to seven scale, seven being extreme risk, zero being no risk at all. The far left is at extreme risk, and the far right is at no risk at all. And if you connect the two points, there's a diagonal line that runs down the middle to people who are moderate, independent, and they're caught right in the center of this. Um, Let me bring this back down. If you look at my life growing up, I basically lived in a highly liberal and highly conservative family, often under the same roof, duking it out. It was a total buzzkill at Thanksgiving. We'd be passing the cranberry sauce and friendships lost, relationships strained. And um, I grew up very apolitical as a result of this. And what that means is when I saw Al Gore get up for the first time and, you know, join the climate brigade and do his whole tour, the first thing I thought to myself was, what's this guy's agenda? You know, economic, political check. When I saw billionaire oil men shouting climate change is a hoax, it's all cyclical, same deal, agenda, political, economic, etc. So I think for anyone who's either politically agnostic or in the middle, there's this look from the sidelines at both poles, and you think to yourself, well, the truth is probably somewhere in between, which is kind of exactly what this study suggests. So I thought that would be a good conversation starter. How's that for foreplay? Yeah, that sounds, that sounds <laughs> a good place to start. I just feel like you got your work cut out for you, man. Yeah, you know, it's, I mean, it's a challenge, right? Um, you know, in some ways, climate change is kind of the most, you know, and you see this in various surveys, it's, you know, it's one of the most kind of polarizing sort of, you know, issues out there, you know, yeah. where you tend to have, you know, people staking out very extreme positions, at least people who, you know, are not in the field but are aware of the kind of concept of global warming and, and climate change. Um, you know, I think 
you know, so it's, so it presents a challenge for communication, you know, yeah. and it make it presents a challenge for kind of helping people kind of understand what climate change is and, and what it means. Um, but what I think it means is that we need kind of a, a buckshot kind of communication approach. Right. So, mean? Well, so, you know, you, you kind of talked about like Al Gore, right. Um, and you know, you've, you know, you're, you know, listening to him and, and, you know, you're immediately thinking like, okay, what's his kind of agenda? Like, so, you know, Al Gore for the most part gets the science fine. Mm-hmm. Right. But you know, his audience is a very particular audience, right? Nobody's going to tune into Al Gore who doesn't already kind of like Al Gore. Right. And so, you know, he's the sort of communicator who's going to like kind of preach to the choir and get, you know, the team motivated. Right. Right. Um, you know, that's not going to be effective for, you know, somebody probably in the middle who might be kind of disengaged and doesn't really know enough or doesn't feel like they know enough to have a very strong opinion and just see these kind of two sides warring. And, you know, certainly nobody on the far right is going to listen to Al Gore because there's all that kind of baggage there. But there's other communicators and other approaches that I think can be used to kind of reach those other groups and and start to maybe reconcile a little bit, um, you know. So, you know, we've talked briefly about Catherine Hayhoe, right, who, you know, has that evangelical Christian background. And, you know, she's talking to, you know, conservative Christians in rural Texas, you know. Um, and, you know, being really quite successful at it, you know, in communicating climate change and, and climate science to them in a way that almost nobody else could possibly do. Right. right? But you were mentioning scientists, and unfortunately so much of this has been contextualized by politicians and or famous moguls on the other side, and the media has kind of pitted them into a, a 50-50 debate. At least that's what I see when I try to study this information. So as someone who doesn't have a scientific background, it's kind of hard to know where to turn because, you know, I I came across you and I said, okay, NASA probably has their science together, but what do I know? I'm not a scientist. You see these other scientists on a lot of these shows saying opposite things. So I, I think for, for someone who has no skin in the game politically Mm -hmm. and doesn't have a scientific background but cares about the environment number one it's a very hard thing to sort through number two i don't really want to plant a flag or die on a specific hill that i feel like i'm going to be lumped in with a political affiliation because of what i believe about what is essentially a scientific issue does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, you know, I, I think, you know, I think what we're seeing in the last few years in particular, and really probably the last like 10 years is, where, you know, with the kind of, in some ways, democratization of, you know, media, you know, right. where anybody can have a website or a Twitter presence, you know, or a YouTube channel or a podcast, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think it's it's kind of facilitated a lot more scientists kind of, um, you know, actually, actually communicating. And I think that's kind of what we need is we need, you know, we need to support and we need to encourage scientists to get out there and engage and, and communicate um, in ways that are not simply kind of pontification. Right. You know, we need we need scientists who are not going to be out there like Al Gore, like, you know, with a kind of kind of political agenda. 
or at least what could be perceived as an extreme political agenda. Um, and so I, I think I think that's at least kind of part of the solution. Is I think you know I think most scientists you know our our work is our, our you know our credibility is our currency, right? And yeah. so you know in fact most you know climate scientists if you find you try to like pin them down on a claim, you know they're going to actually tend to be a little bit or they're going to err on the conservative side, right? Why? Um, I think it's a lot of it's our training. You know when we write a when we write a a scientific paper talking about, you know, some result or presenting some analysis, like, you know, you're, you know, you're trying to, you're trained to try to disprove it. You're trained, you know, you might believe this, but you're, you're trained to try to find any possible way to disprove this. And then if you can't disprove your claim, then it kind of by default sort of stands on its own. Um, but what I think that does is I think that kind of lends us to making kind of conservative statements. We don't make kind of extreme statements because they're, from a kind of statistical or scientific perspective, they're more difficult to s- support. Mm. You know, so we tend to make slightly more conservative statements that, you know, maybe go down easier with our colleagues because our colleagues are all kind of trained to be very kind of skeptical of any claims that people that do, people have. Do you think that would exist without the political division already being there in the same way? Um to a large extent, yes. Um, you know, at least within the kind of scientific literature that maybe, you know, you know, people like you just aren't going to really engage with for, you know, just because it's just so outside of right. your kind of normal, like, consumption. Um, so, yeah, I think it would still be very much there. Um, you know, would it be, you know, like the IPCC reports, right, which are these big consensus reports that come out periodically that are designed to represent the kind of our best kind of state of understanding of, you know, climate change and the climate system, you know, those are, are written for more kind of general consumption. So IPCC for people. Uh, sorry. The, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, the intergovernmental oh, panel. Insider words, man. Yeah. Uh, good point. Uh, the intergovernmental panel on climate change. Okay. You know, and so it's this UN organization that organizes these assessment reports that basically summarize the science around climate change periodically mm-hmm. um, with a kind of goal of providing science to people who are not scientists. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, the, one of the key documents that comes out is called the summary for policymakers, you know, and it's kind of a, a stripped down kind of less technical document that kind of hits, hits the highlights and it's designed, it's not dumbed down, but it's just, it's written in such a way to be accessible to people who are not scientists. Right. You know? And so those reports which are not intended for really for consumption by other scientists, those reports tend to be on air on the conservative side. And so I think some of that is, you know, the kind of conservative bias of scientists sort of bleeding into that. Got it. Um, but some of it might be too, just, you know, the kind of conservative or, you know, trying to additionally air even a little bit more conservative when you're communicating with, you know, stakeholders and politicians and yeah, the public. And again, from my just subjective experience, I mean, I grew up with, you know, Earth Day in 1989. I remember that was the first, you know, discussion about, oh, it's the ozone layer, it's chlorofluorocarbons, and there's a hole, and we need to, you know, stop using aerosol cans, leaky refrigerant, et cetera. And I, I don't remember, maybe as a kid, so... It could be colored, but I don't remember there being this like intense political division at that time. 
Yeah, and I think that's because that, I mean, that was, I mean, that's probably the the best kind of analogy for the kind of current climate change crisis. If you had to look for another big problem that required international cooperation to overcome, right? you know, the first thing that comes to mind are, you know, ozone depletion, the Montreal Protocol, chlorofluorocarbons, right? Um, and, you know, that was a very kind of successful effort, you know, is that we, you know, effectively saved the ozone hole, you know, through the Montreal Protocol and, and these various agreements. You know, I think the difference there is that was very much more focused, right? I mean, there we're talking about compounds in refrigerants, mm-hmm. you know, and so it's kind of a kind of like very singular kind of, you know, thing. Whereas we talk about climate change, we're really talking about everything. We're talking about the car that you drive, the plane that you flew on from San Francisco to come here, you know, the energy that powers your house, you know, or pumps the irrigation to your vineyards, you know, like raised stakes. Yeah, it's it's energy. Like everything everything we're doing right now, you know, is and everything that we've probably done today, you know, at some point requires energy and you know, probably 99 or even 100% of that energy has probably come from fossil fuel source ultimately. So uh, what changed? How did we get in this political mess? Um I mean, one, I think it's I think it's a very hard problem to wrap our heads around. And, and this is, you know, similar to the, the Montreal kind of protocol and, 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 uh, and ozone depletion, you know, where, you know, climate change is kind of a slow, a slow burn. You know, you're talking about slow, steady changes over, you know, decades, multiple decades, even centuries, right? And, you know, most people are not thinking on those timescales because we all have very much more immediate concerns, right? I mean, you're thinking about, you know, how you're going to pay the rent the next year, you know, if you're going to be able to save enough money to put your kid through college. I don't even think that far. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, yeah. like, just to let you know where I'm at. But. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, we're just not built for that. Um, and even politicians, right? I mean, they're, they're thinking about what they can do during this election cycle, right? Because right. when they come up for your election, they need to be able to say that they did something, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, climate change is a problem that, that requires an investment that you're not going to see the dividends on for probably decades. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the decisions we make now are what gonna, are, are going to, you know, are going to manifest in the climate system, you know, 10, 20, 30 years from now. Yeah, I think that's super hard. I think there's a lot of people, you know, me included, who are confused by the science, confused by what what has been pitted as a debate about this politically and it took a slap in the face for me to even want to ask questions and come here so i just to give you a little background i left the restaurant floor a couple years ago launched a business that sees me in vineyards very frequently and when you're dealing with farmers who are on kind of on the front lines of these issues outside of scientists it's really people who are in nature who really experience this on a on a high level i i would visit producers and unilaterally across the globe they'd have harvest reports going back to the 70s picking the same fruit at exactly the same time and they're picking two to three weeks earlier than they did in the 70s and so, you know, that was the first eyebrow raise. I'm like, huh, well, that's happening. And then from there, it escalated into a series of unfortunate events that 
looked like hail um, at my Beaujolais producer's house. And I was there. He lost his whole crop. Hail hit again in May and finished the job. Then it came back the next year, and he lost two successive vintages. Meanwhile, the same stuff is happening the last four or five years in Ribera Sacra. I'm living in California. In 2017, we have two career fires, two career fires defined by the severity of the fire is so great that you you as a fireman see it once in a career and you have two in the same year one happening in december evacuates me out of my home the fire comes a mile and a half from my doorstep and then the ensuing mudslides kill 25 people some of which we know personally santa barbara is a very very small community so strange weather has bit me in the ass and I'm in. I'm still in the void in a lot of ways, trying to to work my way through this, trying to be skeptical, trying to understand what's real in this matter. So that's that's kind of where I'm at right now. Yeah, and you know, I mean, there's, you know, it's not an accident that the single kind of industry that is most engaged in taking seriously climate change is the insurance industry. You know, the insurance industry's kind of lifeblood depends on then being able to properly characterize risk. You know, if they're going to give you insurance for fire or flood or, you know, anything else, you know, they have some sort of, you know, baseline expectation of like, okay, you know, you're only going to get a, you know, we expect a fire to hit this area, you know, once every 10 or 15 years. And that's what they kind of use to set the price for the insurance that they that they give you. Um, but if that risk landscape is changing, right, if the frequency of these fires or the frequency of flooding events, you know, if the frequency of these storms, like, is increasing and changing over time, then, you know, in order to stay solvent, like, the insurance providers need to update their kind of, you know, their assessment of risk. Um, and so, you know, I guess I have to own something to be able to see this process firsthand. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but but, but, but I think, it, you know, it's it's kind of a macro level of, of you know, what you're talking about, these people like on the front lines, you know, like firefighters in California these last couple of years where right. suddenly the entire year is the fire season, yeah. right? Um, you know, or these these farmers or, or viticulturalists who, you know, you know, instead of having like, you know, one bad year every 10 years, they're getting like two or three years in a row where, you know, things are happening that just never happened that way before right. um and so so yeah so that's kind of where you know i think people's kind of eyewitness testimony is 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 is, is shifting the needle anyway so are the insurance companies now jacking up prices and not insuring people what what has been the cause effect of that i'm totally unaware <laughs> um yeah i mean in some cases i mean a lot of it is they're i mean they're kind of planning you know, for the future. I mean, they're trying to, you know, they're assessing losses and they're, you know, assessing, you know, so, you know, for example, in the U.S., it's basically impossible now to get, um, to get, uh, flood insurance in the private sector. That's not very expensive. Um, you know, and, you know, it has to be kind of publicly subsidized because otherwise it's kind of unaffordable. Um, you know, that's a decision that, you know, the insurance companies make because, you know, it's just the, the risk is too large to, to get a payout or to make it, um, fiscally, you know, uh, reasonable. Um, and yeah, I mean, they're like, 
you know, they're in, they're engaged. There's, there's actually a lot of climate scientists or people from kind of meteorology and, and climate change backgrounds who go to work for these insurance yeah. companies, uh, you know, and try to help them understand like, you know, how risks might change from year to year as, you know, you just kind of kind of get normal climate shifts, but also like, you know, how we might expect over the next couple of decades, like, you know, things to shift and, and what that, you know, what that means for the bottom line of these of these companies. So let me turn the uh, the risk question on you. If we go back to the Yale study and you have zero to seven for extreme risk and zero, <coughs> zero is none at all, seven is extreme risk. How do you see climate change affecting? So I'll give a qualified answer. Um, you know, I'd say probably an average of, you know, four to five, glo- you know, kind of global average. But different regions are going to be differently sensitive to different things. You know, you know, climate change means different things in different regions, right? So, you know, you know, if you're, if I'm pegging maybe a global average of like four to five, so a kind of moderate to moderate high risk, right? You know, if I'm talking about something like the Southwestern U S and California and talking about climate change and drought, I would peg that a seven, right? You know, um, you know, drought's probably not going to be an issue in the northeastern U.S., right? Um, you know, or probably Florida. But, you know, if I'm looking at southern Florida, you know, I'm saying climate change and sea level rise and coastal flooding, you know, that's a seven. Yeah. Um, and so, so you know, climate change is no one thing. Like, you know, it doesn't mean the same things are going to get equally bad everywhere. But it does mean that you are going to start to shift these things and we are going to kind of exacerbate, you know, risks and, and issues that these various regions have to deal with anyway. So without taking your word for it, how do I, with my political PTSD and my no scientific background who care about, cares about the environment, trying to make steps in my life, trying to get rid of single use plastic and straws, how, how do I, how do I make sense and get to the truth of this issue? Yeah, so... I mean, do I need to take an organic chemistry class and a physics class and go down that rabbit hole? I mean, what what is my investment? No, you know, I... I yeah, I get... You know, so I guess the first thing I would say is I think, by and large, the, the actual scientists... I'm not talking about kind of like climate change activists or, and, you know, or journalists or... Um, you know, politicians, but the actual climate scientists who are out there communicating, you know, by and large are, are going to give you credible information. So, you know, people like Catherine Hayhoe, um, Jim Hansen, you know, who, you know, used to be, you know, the head of the Goddard Institute for Space Studies here, you know, Gavin Schmidt, um, you know, and the reason for that is because, you know, that's it's their credibility on the line. Right. You know, it's, you know, we're not just speaking to kind of the public, but, you know, we're also, you know, being looked at by other scientists, right. you know, and, you know, so there's a, there's a strong incentive there to not distort the science, you know, and there's always kind of uncertainties and people kind of, you know, might, you know, you know, push their own kind of interpretation of the science, um, that might be a little bit different from somebody else's interpretation. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's almost never going to be something like, you know, you know, completely kind of out there, crazy, 
you know, town. Um, so I, you know, I guess that's my, you know, you know, if you're somebody who's kind of skeptical and, and gun shy about kind of the politicians and the activists and, and those sorts of people, then, you know, I think that's a, I think that's a good source for kind of straight information on, on what on, the, on, the, on our best understanding of what climate change is and what it actually means. Well, I stalked the shit out of your website and I'm literally, this stat is like, like super crazy. Um, I'm literally quoting from NAPA's, or excuse me, NASA's website, always wine on the brain. <laughs> Multiple studies published in peer-reviewed scientific journals show that 97% or more of actively publishing climate scientists agree climate warming trends over the past century are extremely likely due to human activity. Three questions. Yeah. Okay. Number one, how many scientists are we talking in a, in a given study? Oh, uh, I mean, any study could, you know, I mean, typically in climate science, maybe two to six, um, you know, globally, there's maybe, you know, I'd say there's probably about, really about 10,000, like, climate scientists at all kind of levels, you know, full professors, graduate students. You're saying two to 6,000 or two to six? This is, sorry, so two, two to six, like, kind of typical authors in a given study. Right. Oh, okay, you know? got you. And then kind of, you know, if you talk about the kind of global actively researching climate science community, I'd probably pick that around like 10,000. Okay. You know, and that includes like, you know, graduate students and, and, and early career scientists and government scientists and professors and, and those sorts of things. Um, yeah. I, f I found the verbiage funny. And I, I guess maybe you explained it a little bit before when you were talking about being conservative. But when you say like extremely likely due to human activity versus just no, this shit is happening – is there some element of doubt there? Well, you know, yeah. So, you know, a, a lot of what we always try to do is, is and there, there's different kind of standards that different people use, but, you know, you always try to, try to provide some kind of, like, likelihood estimate, right? Like, you can never say 100%, you know, this is true, right? The best you can usually say is something like, you know, we estimate with 99% likelihood, Mm -hmm. or 90% likelihood or 80% likelihood that that this is true. Because there's always, you know, there's always some uncertainty, you know. So in a percentage range, what does extremely likely look like? Uh, yeah, so I'm not sure exactly, um, but certainly in excess of 90%. Okay. You know. Um, so, you know, one of the, you know, just to, to go a little bit over the side here, you know, one of the things in climate science that we were most confident of is what has been causing the warming. Right. Right. Like, I mean, the fact is that the only thing that provides, you know, the, you know, if you wanted to predict the warming over the last, you know, global warming from the 1800s to today, you know, which has been a, a kind of pretty steady warming trend globally. Yeah. Um, the only thing that makes sense is greenhouse gases from, uh, people from combustion of, of fossil fuels. Um, you know, people have looked at the sun, people have looked at, you know, other kind of, you know, things that could potentially cause it. So you're it. talking about the sun, you're talking about the brightness versus the dimness the sun has. Yeah, so, like, you know, so the sun's energy output, you know, changes over time. Right. Um, 
you know, and so that's a, you know, it's a hypothesis for what could cause the warming. But, you know, based on our... Is it a legitimate hypothesis? Uh, I mean, not anymore. You know, it just, it's, you know, all the evidence that we have is that, you know, the, the sun has not changed enough over the last 200 years um, to account to, to yeah to explain this like big warming that we're that we're seeing and what, what the volcanoes affect things there's a lot of other natural yeah so there's right? volcanoes um you know there's just kind of like natural changes in the circulation of the ocean and the atmosphere um you know there's human land cover change right I mean, people have been like expanding farmland you know right. um which can also have an impact um and you know everybody you know Climate scientists have been testing those ideas for decades now, right? Right. Um, who are the three percent? Who, who are these cats? Uh, yeah, it's you know it's it's you know it's hard it's hard to know. Um, so you know that, that I mean that's that and those similar type of studies. You know, basically what they do is they'll they'll sample a bunch of yeah. I saw there's, there's not one there. I think there were like seven major studies that yeah, that, that all come cumulatively up with, came to ninety seven point one. Yeah, and they all, they all come up with kind of the the same thing. And but basically, what they do is they they kind of they establish some criteria for sampling papers from the literature. Right. Right. Um, and then they go to those papers and you know they say, okay, does this paper say that humans are causing climate change, or does it say that they are not? Right. Um, and so, you know, the 3% are, you know, probably, you know, papers that just didn't even mention it. And so you couldn't, you couldn't say from reading the paper one way or the other, whether it like endorsed, you know, the, the consensus or, or not. Um, and then there's always a few papers out there, you know, a lot of geology papers, you know, um, you know, kind of studies of, you know, change over millions of years, um, that sometimes kind of like, you know, try to buck the consensus a little bit. Um, but, but, you know, I, but, you know, I think a good point to make is that you know, this consensus is not artificial. Like, it's not that everybody kind of comes together and agrees, like, you know, you know, there's no cabal sitting in a room saying like, okay, we're all the, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, you know, this is, is consensus. It's an emergent property of the scientific. Everybody's writing their own papers individually and then, Exactly, right? Yeah. Like, you know, everybody who's studying this, no matter what they're doing, is basically getting the same answer. Right. Right. And so that's how that consistence, that consensus builds over time. Yeah. You know, it's not this kind of like top down sort of force thing. It's just this kind of, for lack of a better word, organic emergent property. Right. And that, that I think is actually makes it powerful. So on, in your eyes, like, are, are we at the level where this is like, on a level with believing the earth is flat, if you don't believe that climate change is caused by human activity, is the science that settled? Yes. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I want to I want to believe you. Like, this, there's a skeptic in me who's like, that is too good to be true. And I say good because, like, this, the self-preservation would dictate that if it is that much human activity, then we actually have a chance to do something about it versus this, like, runaway out of control natural freight train that we just have to throw our hands up and say, well, that's life. Yeah. So, so I mean, to provide a little more nuance on that, right. Is that, um, <laughs> I need, I need nuance. Yeah. Uh, so, so, you know, the specific question, you know, is the, is the global warming that we've seen over the last 200 years, right? Yeah. We have as much evidence in support of that as we do have in support of gravity or the earth being, you know, round rather than flat. So that I will, that I will say. 
the impact of that warming on different things, you know, depending on the time horizon that you're looking at, depending on the region you're looking at, depending on the process that you're looking at, you know, those uncertainties, you know, are, are smaller or larger. You know, we could have, you know, some things we have very high confidence in and some things we don't have very much, you know, don't have as much confidence in. But you're saying the human elephant, this elephant element is literally definitely lumped into that scientific consensus. Yeah. I mean, you know, we've, we've understood the greenhouse gas effect. I mean, since the late 1800s, you know, I mean, there were, you know, scientists back then who were doing, you know, some very kind of simplified experiments, um, to sort of demonstrate that, you know, CO2 absorbs heat, you know, and because it absorbs heat, it would trap more heat on the earth and make things warmer, right? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, since the 60s, people have been st studying climate change, like in detail, like human-induced climate change. And How long has this consensus been out there? Um, for the warming, uh, yeah, I mean, probably, I mean, I'd say if you even if you went back like 20 years, 20 years. You know, you'd see a similar kind of consensus. Um, you know, I mean, certainly this is, the science has, like, changed and evolved and progressed over time as we've gotten new information and, and new tools to, to investigate things. Um, you know, but I'd say by, by the mid to late 90s, pretty much any, everybody credible was on board, you know, right. with this idea that, right. okay... <clears throat> We are seeing this global warming, and this warming is very likely due to human greenhouse gas emissions. Okay, here's a stat that made me pee a little. And in fact, this podcast should be called Stats That Make Me Pee a Little, because there's like, we're, we're, we're going to go down the, the doom and gloom rabbit hole later, but I, I, I want to sort through all of it. So this is John Cook's study. I think he's a University of Queensland guy who actually did one of the major studies on the, on the consensus. Yeah. yeah. He also uh, asked a representative sample of Americans. They're asked, uh, what percent of climate experts agree that the global warming we are witnessing is a direct consequence of the burning of fossil fuels by humans? One public perception was 55%, which means the majority of Americans believe this is a 50-50 debate. And the percent of Americans that believe scientific consensus is above 90% is 16%, one six. How do you explain that? Uh, yeah, I, you know, it's... I, I, well, I think it's a sign that, you know, we need climate scientists out there engaging and communicating. Um, you know, because I think for a lot of people, they just, they don't think about it. Yeah, climate change, right? I mean, you know, there's a few, you know, there's, you know, some subset, and it's probably the 16% who are like reading the New York Science Times every week, right? And, you know, watching, you know, nature documentaries all the time. Totally. And, you know, I mean, if this was a meteor, we'd be all over it. You know, oh, here's a photo, you know, like, oh, okay, that's coming in 100 years. Okay. I'm yeah, right. Stop and, this thing. Yeah, yeah, you know, so it's, it's, it's hard, you know, it, it's, it's been hard for most people to, kind of see climate change, you know, and, and you even kind of talked about in your own experiences, right? Like, you know, it wasn't until you were like visiting these vineyards and you're looking at their 40 years of harvest dates and you're like, wow, you guys have been two weeks early every year right? in the last decade, you know? Mother Nature kicked my ass, you know, personally. It just, 
in, in too many scenarios, you know, but it took, it took that to shake me and at least start asking questions. <clears throat> yeah. So, so, you know, I think it's just, I think it's a hard, you know, it's a hard thing for people who are not kind of a priori interested anyway right, right. to, to kind of engage with. And, and, you know, I think it's a sign that, you know, there's, there's space for scientists to get out there and to really, you know, communicate and, and really start dialogues and try to find out like, okay, you know, how do you feel the scientific community is doing? Um, I think we're doing a lot better. You know, I think, you know, the, the classic problem has been that there's no, there isn't really a, a, a reward structure yeah. in science for this sort of outreach. Like, you know, if you're a university professor, then you're judged based on the papers you write and the research you do. Mm-hmm. Um, the grants that you get and to some extent the classes that you teach. Right. Right. And so, and that's a lot of time. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, a lot of, you know, scientists, you know, for a while didn't really do a lot of outreach because it seemed like one more thing that, you know, is just going to take time away from all these other things that actually matter for the job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then you then you open yourself up if you become a communicator, right? And then you open yourself up. Yeah, and, and this is, you know, my, my boss, Gavin Schmidt, you know, has had a whole paper about this, which is that, you know, there's no communication that's risk-free. Right. Right? And depending upon the type of communication that you do, right, you know, that opens you up. And and so, you know, yeah, in particular in our, in our field, you know, where we've, we've seen this, it's really been ugly, has been women climate scientists, yeah. You know, like, you know, I get people yelling at me online and I get kind of nasty emails. You know, my female scientist colleagues get rape and death threats, you know, um, and I've heard Catherine Hayhoe talk about this and she like is such a such a brilliant <coughs> communicator for for the layman. It's it's pretty amazing, like the work she does, and and like hearing what she has gone through, it's pretty pretty amazing. No, and you know, and I've I've seen this, like yeah. you know, I've 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 you know, women colleagues who have shown me, like you know, they'll they'll publish some op ed or, you know, there'll be a kind of news story about their latest research about climate change, right. you know, and then you know, I'll look at their, they'll show me their inbox list, and it'll be like, you know, twenty emails like saying, you know, the most kind of awful things, right? Um, so, you know, it's not fun. It's not fun. Um, but you know, I think it's important, and and so I, I think. Just to get back to circle back a little bit, I think I think there's been a shift where the scientific community is is recognizing that this sort of stuff is important, that this communication is important, and that we should have incentives to at least support those scientists who do choose to right. engage in it. Uh, and so, you know, for example, you know, a lot of the big professional societies now have, you know, in the last several years, started awards for communication. You know, so in addition to like the typical awards for you know, best paper or, you know, some career award. Um, there's now awards for communication, you know, which is kind of an explicit recognition that, that this sort of activity is valued. Cool. So here we go. Hold my hand like a 12 year old, the basic mechanics of basically how this climate change and how, how it works. What's the story? Uh, yeah. I mean, so it's, it's not, you know, it's, yeah, at least I think it's, you know, it, it's pretty basic. So, you know, the energy that powers our climate system, our weather and everything ultimately comes from the sun. Okay? That energy travels across space, gets absorbed 
by the Earth and heats up the Earth. Okay? As the Earth heats up, it tries to send some of that energy back out to space. Right? But because we have these greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, things like carbon dioxide, methane, water vapor, um, those gases actually absorb some of that energy that's trying to escape out to space. Okay? They heat up the atmosphere, and then they send some of that energy back down to the surface. Um, and so, you know, it's kind of like, you know, putting on a coat or a sweater on a, on a kind of cold winter day. So the CO2 and, and methane and nitrous or whatever else there is, it's not the actual heat itself. It's actually catching the heat? Well, it's absorbing the energy coming right. that's trying, that the Earth is trying to send out to space. It absorbs that energy. Uh, you know, those molecules start to, you know, heat up basically. Um, and then they send some of that energy back down to the surface. So what that means is like, you know, the surface of the Earth is getting energy from the sun, Got it. but now we're also getting energy from the atmosphere. Okay. And so, um, so that's kind of, so that's the greenhouse gas effect, which is, um, I mean, the reason that we have life on Earth, right? Um, I get the blanket thing, but what, what, what has caused naturally things to go the other way and cool? Did they f eventually escape? Uh, yeah, so, so, you know, climate can, climate can change for a lot of, a lot of reasons, right? So, um, you know, climate is changing now mostly because of human activities. Basically, we're pumping more of these greenhouse gases into the atmosphere and increasing this greenhouse gas effect. Right. Okay. But, you know, if you go back in time, you can find things like ice ages and, you know, or time periods when there were, you know, alligators at the North Pole, right? When climate was very different, you know, before humans were even a, a factor. Um, and, you know, those changes come from, can come from lots of different things. It can come from, you know, natural variations in the greenhouse gases, okay, like CO2. Um, it can come from actual changes in energy from the sun, um, you know. Are there worse greenhouse gases than others? Like, is there, like, a priority list, like? Uh, I mean, I guess it depends on what you mean by worse. So, um, you know, if you put some, you know, if right now I put, you know, a certain amount of CO2 into the atmosphere and then an equal amount of methane, right? Right. The warming we would get from that methane would be larger than CO2, at least instantaneously, right? But if you look over very long time periods, okay, that CO2... Has a long shelf life. Exactly. That's going to stick around for a long time, whereas the methane tends to be very reactive and eventually, and then, you know, over, you know, several decades to a century is going to, is going to degrade and, and eventually disappear, whereas most of the CO2 that you initially put up there is going to, is going to stick around. So CO2 is kind of the, the long-term killer in a way, but I, it's important to qualify, and you could definitely explain this better than I can, but... Without CO two, we we would not have the chance to have an inhabitable Earth. Oh right? no! I mean, yeah. you know, there's you know, so there's there's two things. There's the greenhouse gas effect, which is what makes the Earth habitable, right. which makes life possible. Um, because otherwise, you know, the Earth would be much much colder than it actually is. But then there's you know current climate change, which is increasing the magnitude of that greenhouse gas effect. Right. I th I think climate change happening is and in and of itself not really that much of a hot button but the moment 
you add the cyclical versus human activity debate into the mix, I think that's where people get tripped up. Um, I I went to both sides and was data mining so many things, and I I had this this episode of Tucker Carlson, believe it or not, where, where Bill Nye gets on there. And both of them clearly coming from opposite ends of the spectrum on the debate, fully loaded. But I, I think what was interesting is Tucker Carlson asked a question that resonated with me, just despite whatever motives he may have had to ask that question. And that question is, okay, let me be open to the fact that this could be human activity. To what degree is it human activity? And he, was, he asked Bill for a percentage and Bill really, in that moment, didn't, didn't really have an answer for him. So I, I, I just, I, I thought it was a valid question, even if, the, the, from a scientific perspective, the logic is flawed. No, no, it, it is a valid question. The answer is actually over 100%. And the reason I, I say that is because um, at the same time that we're putting these greenhouse gases in the atmosphere that are heating things up, we're also putting other things in the atmosphere that are at least regionally cooling things down a little bit, okay? So, you know, air pollution in places like China and India uh, puts, you know, we call them aerosols, little particulates that go up into the atmosphere, stick around for a while, and actually reflect energy from the sun back out to space. Right. So that has a little bit of a cooling effect. The greenhouse gases have a very big warming effect. Um, and so... You know, if you if you only looked at the if you took out all those kind of aerosols and that and that cooling, you'd get even more warming than we actually see right now. Um, there's nothing naturally happening right now that could cause any of the warming that we've seen over the last thirty to forty years. You know, the the you know energy output from the sun has been pretty stable. Um, yeah, I think I kind of data mined one of your graphs. And so if you look at the last 400,000 years, it seemed like over the history of ice ages, there were like seven or, or, or so of them. And, you know, the carbon would be at like 180 parts per million or something like that in the coldest spell. And then at the highest spell, it would be 300 parts per million. And it basically looks like sound waves on this graphic. And then you get to the industrial revolution or pre like 1850 and all of a sudden it's this giant spike straight up and now we're what over 400 yeah we're about 410 it, right now it just doesn't look right and certainly doesn't look consistent with what we've seen over the last 400,000 years no i mean we you know we've compared to the last really last probably 800,000 years we're in a climate space that is just fundamentally different so that was my question is like before like were there ever spikes like that in the Oh, fossil yeah. record? Yeah, I mean, you can go back millions of years and you can find evidence for these these spikes. I mean, you know, a lot of the, um, you know, a lot of the kind of mass extinctions in the past, you know, are thought to be connected to big spikes in CO2. Um, in that case, mostly from, you know, uh, uh, volcanoes. Right. Um, but, you know, the spike in CO2, you know, we know from chemical analyses that this this increase in CO2 is not natural. It's coming from fossil fuels, you know, which have a very specific kind of signature that we can kind of differentiate from just kind of the, the regular carbon that's just kind of cycling around between the atmosphere and the oceans. Hmm. Um, you know, and, and really, like, if, you know, 
we should be we should be getting slightly colder right now or we should be getting slightly colder over the last several centuries um you know if humans were not a factor in the climate system right if you kind of look at the kind of natural cycles like these natural cycles say we should be you know right now we're kind of in between ice ages but we should be starting to head towards another ice age right now right so are we going to uh and the answer is no because we've so fundamentally changed you know the the climate system um because it's just way too warm to is that like no ever period mic drop or is that like i mean certainly n n not in the next you know you know 10 or twenty thousand years you know maybe in a million years you know, when we get some kind of time for some bigger fundamental shifts and plate tectonics and volcanism and, and other kind of things happening, then, yeah, I mean, sure, depending on, you know, if people are even around, there might be some kind of... I'll look you up. We'll yeah, you can grab get, our parkas and, and give me, drink some give me a call. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, in the kind of near term, like, you know, the next 10,000 years, you know, for sure, we, we've broken the ice ages. Well, that's a bad day. Jesus. Um, I mean, you know, you can make a case that, you know, better that we don't go into an ice age. But, you know, what I think it does illustrate is is really how strong the impact of people actually has been on the climate system. Right. right. I mean, this is not, you know, this is not a small effect. We really have just fundamentally altered, you know, the way the world works. Okay. So when it when it comes to warming you know, certain people might be secretly rejoicing. I went to Minnesota a few weeks ago, and our Uber driver was like, we have four seasons in Minneapolis, winter, 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 and construction. So are there people who are stoked about warming? Probably. And should they be? Uh, you know, I think it depends, right? I mean, so, you know, certainly, like, I appreciate a kind of warm week in the winter. I mean, I, I don't like winter, so, you know, if the winter is warmer, then... Personally, I enjoy that more, but you got to come to Cali and visit, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, it's important to recognize that there's other things that go along with that, right? So, you know, particularly here in the Northeast, you know, the thing that controls pest populations like mosquitoes or ticks are the fact that we have cold winters, right? So, cold winter comes, or your know, winter comes, right? Kills a lot of these things and kind of keeps the populations down, right? Um, but if it's warmer, then that means that those pests, those mosquitoes, those ticks, uh, can be active much longer. Um, they can reproduce a lot more. They can increase their populations. They can spread into areas that used to be too cold for them, you know, and, and that's going to have an impact on people and, and ecosystems. Yeah. Right. Um, boring beetles. Yeah. So, you know, like, you know, here in the Northeast, it, we're dealing, you know, a lot of areas we're dealing with these big increases in, um, in tick populations and Lyme disease. Yeah. Right. And, you know, a lot of that is probably due in part to just the warmer winters that we've been having, you know, in the, um, in the Western U S you have bark beetles, um, you know, which are leading to large scale, like vegetation die-offs in, in a lot of areas and mm -hmm. and you know at least in some cases you know those you know outbreaks are you know facilitated by warmer temperatures that allow these you know populate you know, allow these beetles to spread and their populations to increase and um we and see it we see it in vineyard pests we see it with the glassy wing sharpshooter which kills grape plants we see it with vole pressure you know which are like these little rodents that, that are 
moving to areas in vineyards that have never previously moved to. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, I mean, in some ways it's, it's, it's not helpful to think like, you know, I mean, climate change at the end of the day is not inherently good or evil, but it means that the same way of doing things and the same expectations are not going to hold into the future. Right. And that's, you know, whether that's good or bad depends on your own kind of perspective, but that's something that, you know, we need to kind of acknowledge and, and also acknowledge that, you know, none of these things are happening in isolation. Like, right. you know, maybe I'm enjoying the warmer winter, but, you know, I'm going to have to pay for it in terms of, you know, worse mosquitoes or ticks or bark beetles or, or, or fires or things like that. Well, it's interesting you say climate change is not inherently bad because I want to get to, there was, a, there was a, a paper in the New York Times, actually an article called The Uninhabitable Earth, which was like the magnum opus of gloom and doom. And I want to kind of run through a lot of these quotes with you and see what sticks and what doesn't. Um, before we get to that little cliffhanger, um, how did you get into this? Probably should have asked this a while back, but wh what? who is the Ben Cook behind the Ben Cook? Yeah, I mean, so I've always really been interested in nature. And so, you know, I went to went to undergraduate school, you know, for ecology. Um, and I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do with it. You know, I liked walking around the woods and, you know, I liked looking at plants and animals. Um, but then I, you know, I started to read a little bit more about climate change and realized that you could actually study the whole earth as a kind of ecosystem, right? Um, and, you know, that just got kind of got me very excited. You know, I just, you know, to me, that's just a very interesting, you know, kind of problem is trying to figure out like how the earth as a kind of whole entity works and, and how it's likely to change with, um, you know, with human activities and with climate change and, and the impact that, that that's, that that's going to have. Um, so that's kind of, that's kind of where, you know, that's kind of why I got excited about it. And then, you know, like many climate scientists, you know, at a certain point, like, you start to get a little bit more invested beyond the kind of academic nature of it, you know, because it's not like we're just studying Mars, you know, where none of us are ever going to go and where nobody lives. And so yeah. it's very kind of low stakes. Right. You know, whereas, you know, the more you kind of study this stuff, you realize that all these things you're studying, you know, it's not just numbers on your computer. It's like things that have direct ramifications for, for people. Sure. And for, and for ecosystems. Sure. That was a heavy motivation for the PhD. And then, an intense road to probably get to NASA as well, I imagine. Yeah. And, you know, the challenge is kind of, you know, balancing, you know, the kind of dispassionate kind of academic scientists that were, were, were you headhunted or did you apply here? Or like how did that work? Uh, I, I applied, Yeah, you know, so, you know, I was fortunate enough to get a, um, a couple of fellowships and, you know, I happened to be, you know, here on a fellowship around the time that a job opening came, yeah. um, you know, and, and, and I was able to, to come in that way. Um, uh, so but when you talk about, uh, you know, the effects of this on daily life, well, do you feel that with all the aspects that climate change touches, that this is one of the most underrated issues facing the world today? I mean, I think it's, I, th I think it depends on the level. I think it's, I think it's underrated in the sense that... Or at least America. Yeah, I think at least nationally, right? And even globally, people are not taking it as seriously. You know, and by seriously, I mean, you know, 
I don't necessarily mean that like this has to be the focus of like ninety percent of you know dealing with this has doesn't have necessarily have to be the focus of like ninety percent of effort and money, but it'd be nice if it was the focus of something. Um, you know, but at the national and the kind of global level, there's not much kind of going on there. At kind of local government levels, like state levels and city levels, uh, I think it's a very different thing because I think you know, to get back to what kind of what you were talking about before, you know, there you're dealing with people like on the ground, you know, so right. here in New York, right? You know, I lived here through Sandy, you know, and we saw kind of what happened. And, you know, that spurred a lot of like, you know, interest from the city government to basically climate proof the city, you know, figure right. out what are the climate cha challenges that New York City is going to have to uniquely deal with. And let's try to come up with a plan to try to deal with that. And you see similar things happening in places like California, right? You know, so, you know, different risks, but, you know, there, the you know, there, and just like in New York City, the rubber is meeting the road. We're starting to see these impacts of climate change already, and you know that's spurring some action at that at that level. Um, so at least at that level, I don't think it's underrated. I think people really are taking it very seriously. Right. But you know, from an adaptation perspective, anyway. But you know, at the kind of global scale, I don't, I don't know. The, well, the Catherine Hayhoe, getting back to her, she she talked about this. You know, what what is your Essentially, I'm totally paraphrasing here, but you know, what is your highest priority in life? If you're world hunger mind minded, climate change has a hand in that. If you're afraid of escalating social contact or conflict, climate change has a hand in that. And I think she used the example of the Syrian civil war kind of escalating off of a drought. If you're afraid of zombie apocalypse type scenarios with disease, climate change has a hand in that. Economic minded, climate change has a hand in that. So it's not just one thing that it affects, it affects multiple ideologies. No, and you know, you kind of see this like, you know, so for example, I mean, the military kind of use climate change as a threat multiplier. You know, climate change by itself is not going to cause, you know, the collapse of a, of a state in some location. But you know, climate change has the potential to exacerbate existing tensions. If it's a region that's food insecure, subsistence, you know, agriculture kind of barely holding on, you know, places like East Africa, and climate change makes droughts worse there and negatively impacts the food, right? right then, you know, they've got that built-in vulnerability, and then climate change is that like added stress, you know, on 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 top of that. I mean, here in the U.S. South Florida, right? Like coastal flooding's been a thing for a while, like king tides, that sort of stuff, right? Storm surges. Climate change just amps that up uh, a bit and, and makes it a bit worse. And so, you know, it's not, yeah, it's not even about like prioritizing climate over these other things, but just in, incorporating in consideration of climate into whatever you're kind of doing or whatever, whatever thing you think is, in, is important. Okay, so are you ready for the alarmist sound bites? Okay, and we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna basically um, discuss kind of like what they call tipping point um, scenarios. And so, first of all, we should probably like define this nebulous tipping point. Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not very well defined, but you know, you could view it as sort of a, a kind of point of no return, right? So, you know, past a certain level of warming. You kind of lock in things like the collapse of the greenhouse, like or the the Greenland ice sheet, right. right? Like once you like destabilize that ice sheet beyond a certain point, like you can't put the genie back in the, in the bottle. bottle, right? Like even if it takes another hundred years for that ice sheet to melt, like 
you know, it's going to happen. And so that's at least one kind of so way the, you could the define. UN just threw out twenty forty because it was all over the news. You know, I mean, is this like the Mayan calendar or like what, what's going on here? Yeah, I mean, so you know, that's that's all about this this report on. You know, this kind of 1.5 degrees report, right? So Right, yeah. It was, you know, paraphrasing again, but it's basically we have until 2040 to get our shit together or it's like Thelma and Louise time. Yeah, I mean, I don't quite agree with that, but, you know, it, it is, you know, so, so you know, Paris, the Paris Agreement, you know, set this kind of target of like two degrees. Yeah. This idea that like we shouldn't, we should avoid two degrees. And then they also set like a more ambitious target where... Well, you know, let's go for two degrees, but let's also try for something more ambitious, like one and a half degrees. Right. And that means like the warming above, you know, the kind of, you know, pre-industrial, the period before humans really started to monkey with things. Um, you know, just to give you some context, like four and a half degrees is like the difference between now and an ice age. Um, so, you know, these, these degrees might sound small, but from a global perspective, they're, they're a very big deal. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this new report came out, you know, talking about this. And, and this is actually something that, that climate scientists have known for a while, but this is just a, a consensus report that was put together to provide some information for stakeholders and policymakers and, and the politicians, right? Um, and, and, you know, basically what it's, you know, what it says is like, you know, we need, you know, it's going to be almost impossible for us to actually meet this one and a half degree threshold to kind of stay, to stay below that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and in fact, like even just based on the actual country commitments in the Paris Agreement, those aren't even sufficient to meet the two degree kind of threshold. But the thing I always kind of you know, I tell my students is that, you know, climate change is not pass fail. You know, it doesn't mean that like if we go over two degrees, game over, Mad Max kind of global apocalypse, right? Right. But it's really a kind of continuum, right? Like all these kind of impacts that we talk about basically scale with warming. The more warming that we allow to happen, the worse droughts will be, the worse sea level rise will be, the worse storms will be, et cetera, et cetera. So any warming that we prevent, you know, is going to have some benefits by at least preventing the kind of worst case scenarios, like maybe the collapse of the Greenland ice sheet. And so... And then, you know, at the end of the day, it's going to be this kind of balance between mitigation and, and adaptation, right? So mitigation is trying to prevent the warming. And any warming that we don't prevent, we're going to have to adapt to. So right. the more we mitigate, the less we'll actually have to adapt. Right. Um, so, you know, I don't think it's, you know, I, I think some of the, the the kind of discussion around, you know, this like, oh, 2040, like, we're doomed. We're not going to stay below 1.5 or even 2, like... You know, I don't think that's helpful because that's kind of a very, you know, it's a kind of very defeatist thing. And, you know, it's also kind of a little bit selfish, right? Because, you know, a lot of people sort of saying this live, you know, here in the U.S. where, you know, we're going to be able to deal with climate change. Right. Like, it'll be painful in some ways, but we're going to be able to deal with it in ways that places like sub-Saharan Africa are not and don't have the resources. You know, it's just like, I mean, it's, it's like anything. It's a, as, as much perspective as it is true. So, like, I like watching disturbing movies. Maybe that makes me a little twisted or whatever. But I could either respond by, you know, slitting my wrists, or I can respond to that movie by saying, wow, that's cleansing um, and sobering. And 
I need to maybe maybe I can it makes me think about my life and what I want to do, what I want to change, and you know what I mean. And so like obviously you know we we have to cut through to the truth and and what is and what isn't. But if there are doomsday potential scenarios at like four degrees warming. I, I want to kind of flesh out what that what that would look like, and maybe we can talk about the truth or partial truth going on there, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, so you know, so like here, it, let, let me give you one. Okay. So uh, at, at four degrees since 1980, the planet has experienced a 50 fold increase in the number of places experiencing dangerous or extreme heat at four degrees warming. The deadly European heat wave of 2003, which killed as many as 2,000 people a day, will be a normal summer. Uh, yeah, I mean, so if we allow the world to warm up four degrees. Again, it's quote New York Times art. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, so, you know, 2003, a very severe heat wave in, in Western Europe, you know, killed anywhere between 10 and 40,000 people. Right? Yeah. Um, and that summer you know, which was extreme and, and incredibly rare if you just kind of look at the last 200 years. Right. In a world that's four degrees warmer, you know, would be a kind of normal thing. Um, now, that said, there's two things here. One, you know, one of the reasons why the mortality rate was so high is that most of Western Europe doesn't have air conditioning. And so, you know, not being able to kind of cool Cope. down, like they didn't have the adaptation capacity. Summer, right. yeah, summer labor in the Mississippi Valley. So, it, 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 yeah, yeah, and then um, you know, or like you know, recent heat waves in India, where you right. know ninety percent of the population is employed as day laborers, right? Uh, and then two, there is a very good chance, if we want, that we can avoid four degrees, right? We're going to bust through two degrees, right? right? But you know, there's still a lot of play between two and four, and so this again is kind of what I mean is like. You know, we still can avoid these worst case scenarios. But business as usual assumes this is a foregone conclusion. Well, so right now, the kind of revised business as usual pegs us at probably about three point, about three and a half degrees. By the end of? By the end of the 21st century. So 2100, we're at 3.3. Or 3.6. 3.6. Yeah. Um, that's the kind of like you know, current kind of best estimate of, uh, kind of, if we don't do anything, that's not a fun estimate. No. Um, it <laughs> doesn't make me happy, but I mean, again, like, you know, that's 80 years from now, like we could keep it at three, like we could keep it below that. Like we, you know, you're a really positive dude. I need you in my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's just about like, you know, we've, it, you know, the, it's, you know, I mean, I, you know, I don't know how to, you know, I don't know the politics, you know, I don't know how to convince people like really. And, and most of my communication is not with the idea of like explicitly trying to convince somebody. It's just trying to be out there and kind of communicating. Um, but, you know, from a physical perspective, like, you know, I think we have the beginnings of the tools to actually, you know, do that. Right. You know, whether there's the actual political support for, this climate mitigation that would allow us to avoid this kind of worst case scenario that I don't know. Okay. So let's see if, if I'm still bad cop and, and you're still good cop when I read these quotes. Um, all right. So this was, oh, this is a good one for every degree of warming 
crops decline 10%. That's conservative. Some run as high as 15. Yeah. So, you know, the, the big thing with a lot of crops, right, is, is the part of the crop that we eat is the, the reproductive portion of it, right? So, you know, we eat the, you know, the, the kind of wheat germ or, or you know, the, the corn kernels or, or whatever, right? And, you know, as temperatures increase above a certain amount, the kind of respiration of the plant, like the requirement for the plant to burn its internal energy to kind of maintain yeah. living really increases. Um, and, uh, yeah, and so that means that there's less, there's less energy that it can invest in, you know, the stuff that we actually, that we actually eat. Oh, wow. So um, it's, it, I mean, I, I looked at, at that as probably like a bud break issue. Like when I think about crops, I think about vineyards. And if bud break starts earlier, there's more likely to be problems earlier in the season with how that fruit sets if there's snaps of frost and things like that. So so in certain cases that, you know, that is an issue, right? So, you know, here, you know, in um, in New York, the Hudson Valley is known for its apple orchards. And, you know, several years ago, you know, we had a really warm spring they all put out flowers really early and then we had a really big hard frost right. and snow, you know, and killed a bunch of the flowers and, and, and wiped out a lot of the, um, you know, a lot of the apple crop that year. Uh, you know, similar thing in, um, you know, in Georgia with peaches, you know, I think last year or the year before something like 80% of the Georgia peach crop failed, mm. you know, and it was because of this kind of early, early spring followed by a, a frost yeah. that, 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 you know, wiped out the, the flowers. So that's, you know, that's another thing that, you know, also has a, you know, on it. you know, um, so, you know, this is a challenge because how do you, that's a little more difficult to kind of adapt out of, right. Mm -hmm. You know, so there's, you know, people working in agronomy and biotech to try to like, you know, breed strains that, you know, are less susceptible to these sorts of things. Okay. Um, but you know, that's, you know, you, you can't air condition a, a wheat field. No. Right? You know. Not without and, a serious structure. Yeah. I mean, it, it just, you know, it's just, it's just impossible, um, effectively. Right. Uh, and so, you know, there really is going to have to be some significant advances in. If Elon Musk can, can do it, no, anybody can. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. Maybe that, maybe that should be <laughs> Elon Musk's next or Jeff Bezos can like invest, right. you know, in, right. in, in that, um. Okay, increased weather events, moving right along. The strongest hurricanes will become more often, will come more often, and we'll have to invent new categories with which to describe them. Tornadoes will grow longer and wider and strike much more frequently, and hail rocks will quadruple in size. This sounds very revelations. Yeah, I don't, so, you know, I don't really know about the tornado thing. I don't think there's much evidence really for us to make any confident statements about how tornadoes will change with climate change. You know, with regard to hurricanes, the most confident statements we can make are that in in a warmer world, basically the hydrologic cycle gets supercharged. Right. And so that means when it does rain, it rains even harder. And so, you know, you saw this with Harvey in Houston last year, you know, and you've seen this with, you know, other other hurricanes. You know, the one thing we expect is that, you know, we're probably going to get the same amount of hurricanes in the future that we do now, but they're going to be a lot rainier. And because the ocean temperatures are a lot warmer, and it's the ocean temperatures that provide basically the fuel for these hurricanes, uh, you know, the potential for them to get stronger is So there. Hurricane Michael just hit, just to date this podcast, yesterday? Yeah. Yeah. Biggest 
storm in 50 years for the U.S., largest in Florida panhandle. Like, obviously, would you you would attribute, I think, Sandy to climate change. Would you attribute that to Well, so, you know, it, you know it, I guess it, the question is, what about it would you attribute, right? So, like, if you take it back to, like, Hurricane Harvey, right, which, right. like, um, you know, hit Houston, right? Even without her, without climate change, Hurricane Harvey probably would have happened. But it's very likely that it would not have rained anywhere near as much and dumped as much water on Houston without climate change. Yeah. And this is really the, the kind of like, you know, the way to talk about climate change in these events, right, is that, you know, climate change don't, doesn't cause these events, right. but it changes their character. Right. Right. And so it can make them like, you know, worse. Um, you know, with, uh, you know, this, 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 you know, recent hurricane that hit the panhandle, you know, what happened is that that hurricane, you know, hit a patch of incredibly warm waters right along the coast. You know, that's the fuel that supplies the hurricane. Um, and the whole thing just ramped up to a category four in an incredibly short amount of time. Yeah. Now, whether those warm waters over, you know, in the Gulf of Mexico were warm because of climate change, it's difficult to say right now. But we expect in a world that's warmer that the ocean temperatures should be should be warmer. So you ready for a fastball down the middle? All right. Drought. This is your emphasis, my friend. Here we go. Quote, by 2080, without dramatic reductions in emissions, Southern Europe will be in permanent extreme drought, much worse than the American Dust Bowl ever was. Um, Already laughing. <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't know. I, you know, I don't know if I'd ever say permanent, right? But, you know, certainly the Mediterranean... You know, we've already seen that the Mediterranean has dried up. Like the last 50 to 60 years, we've seen this trend towards less rainfall in the Mediterranean that we can only really explain with global warming and, and climate change. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I don't know that I'd put those exact numbers on it, but, but yeah, I mean, the Mediterranean is one of these hotspots where we expect with climate change, droughts are going to get a lot worse, and we're pretty confident in that. You know, same thing in the U.S. Southwest Central America, Southern Africa, probably parts of, of, of South America, you know, these areas, you know, with warming, like droughts are, are going to get worse. And, and part of that is changes in rainfall patterns. Mm -hmm. But part of that is also like evaporation, you know, if, you know, because at the end of the day, like everybody thinks about drought in terms of rainfall. But when you talk about drought impacts on people and ecosystems, it's actually how much water is in the soil. Right. And so, you know, you can stop filling that up by reducing, reducing rainfall, but you can also s empty that out by like warmer temperatures, just s increasing evaporation and just sucking more moisture out of the surface. Right. Um, and so, yeah, so there's a lot of areas where, yeah, we expect with climate change droughts to really intensify with, um, with climate change. Okay. Man, you're really, you, you've been good copping it so far. This is impressive. Paleo diseases. There are now trapped in Arctic ice. <laughs> Diseases that have not circulated in the air for millions of years, in some cases since before humans were around to encounter them, which means our immune systems would have no idea how to fight back when those prehistoric plagues emerge from the ice. I mean, here's the thing where we just, we just don't have enough information. Like, it's not like we know that there's a, a pool of, you know, super anthrax. I mean, there could be, but we don't... What's behind door number four? Yeah. We don't know, right? I right. mean, you know, 
So, you know, it's, there's lots of reasons to be concerned about climate change, you know, and there's lots of things that we're pretty confident, you know, our climate change is going to make worse, you know. Like Zika, for instance. Yeah, like pests, you know, insect-borne diseases, droughts in some regions, heat waves, you know, impacts on agriculture, sea level rise and coastal flooding, right? Those are things that, you know, we have a very kind of confident understanding in, um, at least for some regions. You know, I don't think we know enough about what's buried in the Arctic to say, like, you know, oh, in 2080, like when the temperature gets above this point, then, you know, it's pandemic time. So unbreathable air. So CO2 just crossed 400 parts per million at high end estimates extrapolating from current trends suggest it'll hit 1000 parts per million by 2100 at that concentration compared to the air we breathe now, human cognitive ability declines 21%. Um, you almost threw up in your mouth a little bit right there. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know enough about the exact physiology, right? Like, obviously, you know, you know, I mean, this happens to scuba divers all the time, right? If they yeah. have too much CO2, then they, you know, then they sort of have problems. Um, you know, I will say there have been... Lots of times in the past where CO2 has been very high and we've had lots of animal life. Yeah. So, again, I think it's one of these things where, you know, I'm concerned about a lot of things about climate change. I don't know that I'm specifically concerned about this. How about the economics? There was a study done. There's a 12% chance that climate change will reduce global output by more than 50% by 2100 and a 51% chance that it lowers per capita GDP by 20% uh, if emissions don't decline. By comparison, the Great Recession lowered global GDP 6%. So it would be three times worse. Yeah. I mean, coin flip. You know, it's, it's hard to know just because these, these economic models mm-hmm. um, have lots of assumptions built into them Yeah, you know, about the sorts of industries and and what people are doing and, and what trade is like. Um, I think the assumption was it's business as usual. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't know enough about it. I mean, certainly there's, yeah. you know, I mean, you know, somebody who, you know, Bill Nordhaus just won the, the Nobel prize in, in economics. Right. And he was one of the first, you know, people, you know, back in the, I think the seventies to kind of do an economic analysis of climate change. Right. right? And so, you know, here, you know, he, you know, this two degree threshold that everybody talks about, you know, basically comes from a back of the envelope calculation that he kind of did where he kind of right. his idea was like okay you know when do we get it kind of outside of normal normal you know air quote uh you know uh variation and he said two degrees right and so um so i think i think most economic analyses suggest some decline in gdp and economic output you know i just i don't know enough to really to really talk about it and, and again i think a lot of it is dependent on various assumptions built into these economic models. So four to 10 feet of sea level rise by end of century. What does Miami look like in 2100? What does Brooklyn and Long Island look like? What does New Orleans look like? Yeah, I mean, so this is one of the singular basic biggest challenges with with climate change. Um, Give it to me straight, Doc. uh, And the problem is a lot of this stuff is it's kind of irreversible, right? Like, once you melt an ice sheet, can't you know? It's hard to, to you know, in the current climate, it's hard to build that back up, right? Um, so you know, I think 
I think by the end of the century, if we kind of continue business as usual, I think much of coastal southern Florida, I mean, could basically be, for lack of a better word, uninhabitable in the sense of like just nuisance flooding and, you know, storm surges would just be so frequent that it just would not be, you know, sustainable, sustainable, right? Um, you know, I think similar things with places on the Gulf Coast and, and New Orleans, which is, you know, actually below sea level right now, um, you know, because of, you know, subsidence. Um, you know. Brooklyn, Long Island, Red Hook. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these areas are very low-lying. You know, a lot of New York City, you know, if you ever read an environmental history of New York City, you realize, like, how much of the current topography is basically infill, right? It's basically, you know, people dumping soil in between the high and low tide lines and kind of building out into the into the estuary. I mean, that's basically all of all of lower Manhattan, you know, is is that Battery Park City is all, you know, just, you know, built on stuff that was dumped in the river when they were building the original uh World Trade Center. Um you know, New York's a harbor, so there's potential maybe for seawalls, you know, to kind of mitigate some of this, but you know, you know, there's a potential to get to the point where, again, like nuisance flooding just happens so often that it's just not certain parts are uninhabitable. Yeah, or just you know, nobody's going to want to kind of deal with it. Um, and that's you know likely not our problem, but certainly ch our children's problem, and definitely grandkids. Yeah, I mean, you know, my son is three now, and you know, there's a. There's a very high likelihood that he will live long enough to see, and certainly his his kids, if he has them, will, you know, see what 2100 actually looks like. Yeah. You know, um, and, you know, so it's, it's, you know, that's kind of humbling. And I think the other thing that's kind of humbling is, and that's what I tell people when I, when I give a lot of these talks, which is like, you know, everybody kind of talks about climate change like a future problem, and it's not. Like, we're seeing it now, like, you know, we're seeing coastal flooding and in areas, you know, that's increased so much. And it's because of sea level rise, like from climate change. And, you know, we've seen these increases in temperatures and heat waves and things like that, that, you know, we can pin pretty definitively on on climate change. And so, you know, climate change is not a future problem. It's a it's a now problem that's going to continue to increase in its magnitude, um, you know, if we kind of keep going the business as usual track. So let's wrap it up with solutions. How do, how do you see us dealing with this? I mean, is it start from the ground up or is it completely macro at this point? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, obviously, you know, there's lots of ways that people can reduce their own kind of personal carbon footprint, right? I mean, you know. If you really want to reduce your personal carbon footprint, I mean, the, the best things you can do, and, and again, I'm not making any actual recommendations, but you know, the best thing you can do is not drive, not have kids, not eat meat. You know, in terms of like personal activities, those are the kind of like biggest carbon generating activities. Um, but, you know, I don't think these sorts of problems have ever really been solved by individual action right i think so i think you really do need some like top level you know global cooperative efforts um you know kind of like what we had with the montreal protocol and, and ozone and 
and that doesn't mean like necessarily big government regulation. Like, I mean, that can mean a lot of things and, and you know, and I'm, I'm certainly not the kind of qualified person to say one solution is better than the other. Right. Or, um, but it's going to require some kind of directional effort that starts to, I mean, basically incentivize shifts away from fossil fuels. Right. right. Um, and, you know, I think there's a whole kind of spectrum of ways that, that we can kind of do that. And, and again, I'm not, you know, I can't. My girlfriend's got me on no deodorant outside of this moment right here with a video podcast i've avoided plastic and straws starbucks is starting to move everything to paper straws are, are at yeah. the very least are, are these at least conversation pieces that maybe small and business small business and big business can start saying hmm is there a market here maybe i mean so the straw thing is a little bit frustrating right because you know a lot of it is is mostly like around this idea of like all this plastic pollution in, you know, in, in the oceans, which is a really big issue, right? But something like 80% of the plastic in the oceans is all from like fishing lines and um, nets. Um, and so the same sort of thing, like I, I always point out when people talk about like flying, well, okay, you know, yes, if you fly like, you know, that represents, you know, your, you know, that, that really increases your carb your personal carbon footprint. But globally, emissions from planes is about two to three percent of the total. So you could completely and technically, it's shared with other passengers, right? It's like yeah, it's a yeah. But but again, the day you know, it's like I mean the I mean the climate system doesn't care about your kind of specific footprint. It cares about the total. And the fact is, like you know, you could ground every single plane in the world, you know. And, you know, it's kind of like the paper straw or it's kind of like the plastic versus paper straws, right? Like, right. you know, even if we wholesale shifted to, you know, paper straws, it would probably not make an appreciable impact on, you know, plastic pollution in the ocean. Let's take the straw thing, for instance. That's, that's a lot of paper straws. And so maybe it doesn't help plastic in the ocean, but does it create a conversation piece for people to talk about and to actually become aware of why this is happening? Yeah, I mean that's a good question, right? Um, I mean, it, does it like that's hard? That's that's as a scientist, you can't quantify that, right? But does it, you know, is it enough to actually start a conversation where people actually start paying attention? You know, is it a kind of like foot in the door right. for people to start paying attention to this that becomes a kind of opening for bigger, more meaningful action, right? Right. Um, and and yeah, I don't know. I mean, potentially, you know, for sure. You know, I, I think I think where individual actions are really pushing things forward is mostly the kind of adaptation kind of side of things, right? I mean, mm. you know, New York, California, you know, you know, even Oregon and Washington that are, you know, doing various things. Um, you know, a lot of that is basically like people pushing the government, you know, to like take these problems seriously and try to come up with a plan. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there I think you're in a case where you know, again, you're kind of more of an eyewitness to what's going on. And so I think the resistance to this stuff is a little bit less, right? I mean, everybody in California was talking about the drought several years ago, right? And everybody was taking it seriously, you know, and thinking about it. Um, you know, here in New York, we're not experiencing the drought, so we're not kind of thinking about it. But, you know, 
here we're experiencing other things that we're kind of like you know focused on and so so i think there's a lot of, i think there's a lot of space for for people to push adaptation solutions mm-hmm. um I, I heard a stat from Catherine hayhoe that a, th- a third of the carbon emissions are america alone is that right <clears throat> i you know i don't know that specific number but certainly you know compared to most other countries like you know the kind of per per person emissions are much higher for the U.S. Um, than even for Europe. You know, and a lot of that is we just have a very kind of higher, more energy intensive, you know, society. Like, you know, most people, you know, have one or two cars that they drive regularly. Newer buildings, like, yeah, I mean, like, there's so many things. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's... Having lived in in Europe. Yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, so exactly, right? Like, um you know, there's like a, there's like a lot of Europe is more centered around, um, you know, kind of shared resources a little sure. bit more, um, you know, and that's probably partially from like history, you know, history, right? I mean, you know, Europeans have been, you know, butting up against each other for, you know, 2000 years, mm-hmm. right? Whereas, you know, Americans, you know, have had this whole kind of like country to kind of there's definitely Expanded. more of a consciousness there, a more mindfulness that I see, having lived in France for several months and yeah. um, going down to Spain. And, you know, and a lot of it is just the amount of rural area, you know? Yeah. And, you know, even, you know, even Europe is an energy intensive compared to a lot of these developing countries, right? right? You know, um, that have less meat in their diet or, you know, less cars, less, less everything. Um, so this is this is kind of another kind of issue too that needs to be explored, which is, you know, if you know if if the U.S. and Europe are the main kind of culprits for causing climate change, right? Then, you know, is it reasonable to expect everybody to sacrifice equally, right? I mean, you know, the impact of the U.S. is just so much larger than you know, Chad or South Africa, you know, or Vietnam or, or Laos. And so expecting everybody to kind of, you know, pay the same, you know, is, is, is maybe not, not the most fair kind of thing. Overall, are you positive uh, that this war is winnable and winnable might not be the right word, but at least manageable? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I guess I'd say I'm cautiously optimistic because I, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic that we can that we can avoid the worst case scenarios, you know, because I think to avoid the worst case, we we have time, we have the technology developing, we just need some kind of you know, and maybe this is the hardest part of all, right? We need some political will to you know try to push these solutions these solutions forward. We started on politics, we ended on politics. Um, Ben, thank you for this visit and for taking time. I really appreciate it, man. Yeah, thank you very much. Cheers.